want to extend my warm welcome to those of you who are tuning in and watching this morning from wherever you may be. And if you have a Bible there with you, uh, let me encourage you to take it and turn with me to the eighth chapter of the book of Daniel. Uh, Daniel chapter eight, uh, for those uh, who may be um, participating with us for the very first time, uh, since the summer, uh, we've been in a study, a verse-by-verse study through this Old Testament book of Daniel, and uh, we come now to this eighth chapter. Uh, you know, when you look around at all of the tension in the world today, uh, it would seem that you have nation pitted against nation, uh, social unrest, and even upheaval uh, at levels that we haven't seen in our lifetimes Part of us can't help but wonder where all of this is headed. And uh, even this week has got to be one of the most tumultuous weeks in recent political history uh, in our country. Uh, We've come through a tense election season, and uh, there's a winner who's been declared. There's an incumbent who's vowing to take things to court, and it's just a tumultuous time. Uh, like many of you, I subscribe to a variety of devotionals that get emailed to my inbox, and uh, one of those is Turning Point by Dr. David Jeremiah. And I was so encouraged by one of his devotional thoughts that he emailed out this week, but, but he told the story of uh, the 1916 election. Uh, just prior to America's involvement in World War I, uh, President Woodrow Wilson was up for re-election. It was 1916. His challenger was a guy by the name of Charles Hughes. And former presidents had endorsed the challenger. The results of the election were extremely close. The outcome remained in doubt for a couple of days. Uh, Leading newspapers around the country had called it in favor of Hughes, only to have it reversed. But Dr. Jeremiah mentions... um, a quote that was taken from the memoirs of one of the Secret Service agents who had guarded President Wilson. Um, Edmund Starling was the guy's name. But he said that the chief of staff of the White House uh, was just a bundle of nerves prior to the election. All of the White House advisors were just nervous how things were going. But according to Starling, uh, all of the nervousness and the strain of it all didn't extend to President Wilson himself. As a Presbyterian, he was completely calm, having decided that he had done his best to fill the job and his future in it was in the hands of God. Now, here's the thing. With all that's going on in the world around us, the future of our world really appears to be hanging in the balance. The future of our nation appears to be hanging in the balance. But in reality, the truth of the matter, the fact of the matter, is that it's all in the hands of our God. It's not hanging in the balance. It's resting in the hands of an omnipotent, sovereign God who's in control of it all. And so it's in times like these that we can really find our bearings in the prophetic passages of the Bible, such as the book of Daniel. And the the message of Daniel that we've seen over and over again throughout our study of this book is that contrary to the way that things seem around us, the kingdom of our God is certain. Nothing can thwart our God's purposes and plans. The kingdom of God, his throne is established. 
and God rules over the affairs of men. Empires come and go, uh, kings rise and fall, elections are won and lost, but ultimately the kingdom belongs to the Son of Man and those who are his. And that's the message of the book of Daniel. And the time is quickly coming when the Son of Man is going to be coming on the clouds of heaven. Now this is the truth we're presented with in Daniel chapters seven and eight. And both of these chapters reveal visions that God gave to Daniel concerning the future. Now we've already seen how the vision in chapter seven involved four beasts. And those four beasts are symbolic of human governments or empires that would emerge from the sea of humanity over a wide sweep of human history. In fact, Daniel chapter seven, the vision in that chapter uh, is one in which God shows Daniel really the, the future of Gentile empires leading all the way up to the return of Jesus Christ to establish his kingdom upon the earth. Now we'll come to this eighth chapter and, and you'll notice that Daniel's going to receive another vision and uh, this vision also involves animals that are used as metaphors. But in chapter eight, it's not so much beasts uh, as much as it is a ram and a goat. And so both of these visions use uh, metaphors from the animal kingdom. And that's only appropriate because the traits we find in certain animals are ideal metaphors for human behavior. In fact, I imagine you've used uh, one of these expressions at some point in your life where you've referred to someone as being as stubborn as a mule or so-and-so is sly as a fox, uh, or wise as an owl. There's something about uh, animal traits that we tend to apply to certain aspects of human behavior. And, and that's something that we can identify with and understand, and that's what Daniel is, is doing here in this uh, seventh and eighth chapter. God gives him a vision, and this vision involves uh, metaphors from the animal world, but God is showing him what's going to happen in the world of humanity. And so they're pictured, uh, these Gentile governments are pictured as unruly beasts who were determined to dominate, and yet they're destined to be destroyed by this coming son of man figure whom Daniel sees in the seventh chapter. Now, chapter eight, this has to be one of the most mysterious chapters, but one of the most remarkable chapters in all the Bible. And someone says, well, why in the world would you ever even preach a sermon from the eighth chapter of Daniel? Simply because it's next. And when you preach verse by verse through books of the Bible, uh, you come to those passages that are next. And that's why I love verse by verse exposition through books of the Bible, because uh, it forces the preacher to deal with passages and texts and various subjects that perhaps he wouldn't ordinarily turn to. But I don't find it coincidental that we're dealing with this passage, especially in light of where we've been in terms of society. Because it's from these passages that we're able to glean the hope that our God reigns supremely no matter what's going on in human governments around the world. So if you've got your Bible there, Daniel chapter eight, I want you to read with me, beginning in verse number one, uh, the Bible says, in the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. 
And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ulai Canal. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. And I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. And as I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him, and there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came a little horn. Now, time out for just a second. That phrase there, little horn, uh, that should call to mind the little horn who's mentioned in Daniel's vision in chapter 7. It's not the same person that's being referred to, but, but uh, I'm going to show you how this little horn that's mentioned in this eighth chapter is going to serve as a prototype of a world, a world leader or ruler who's going to emerge in the last days. But out of one of the four horns came a little horn. It grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, toward the glorious land. It grew great even to the host of heaven. And some of the host and some of the stars, it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. And it became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And the host will be given over together uh, to it with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. And then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, for how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, and then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. Now, I want to stop reading here. I want to speak from this subject this morning, Daniel's vision of the future. This vision that Daniel is given of the ram, the goat, the four horns that emerge, and then the little horn that emerges from one of those four horns, all of this has to do with the future that Daniel could anticipate concerning God's people. In fact, this vision recorded in this passage provides details that involve some of the most well-known leaders who've ever lived in human history. 
And yet, even beyond this, the vision presents us with some prophetic markers concerning the rise of the most evil leader who will ever walk across the stage of human history. And the New Testament writers refer to him as the Antichrist. Now, we'll get to him in just a little bit, but much of what's written in this chapter is history from our vantage point now. But from Daniel's vantage point, it was all prophecy. Now, I know that not that many people are interested in history. Uh, Some folks would rather watch paint dry than listen to someone lecture about history, and I get that, I understand that. I happen to love history, but for the two or three other nerds who are out there watching with me, uh, we are in the minority. For a lot of people, history is dry and boring. Maybe it brings back painful memories from Western Civ class in high school where someone lectured on and on and on and almost would put you to sleep as far as history is concerned. We yawn when it comes to history. Now, prophecy, on the other hand, well, prophecy does something different as far as our senses are concerned. There's something about prophecy that piques our interest levels. There's something about prophecy that, man, we're really interested in when it comes to the future. Dr. Chuck Swindoll says that we're far more interested in where we're going than where we've already been. One of the reasons why history is so dull and boring to so many folks is because it involves where we've already been. You know, been there, done that, got the t-shirt, let's move on to something else. Prophecy deals with the future. And, And what person among us is not concerned to some degree about the future? Our future on an individual level, All of us want to know what our future holds. I mean, people are mesmerized when it comes to the future. Why do you think that the horoscopes exist and palm readers and all this kinds of stuff exist? People are just generally interested in in their future and they'll turn to all kinds of different means and travel all kinds of different avenues to have someone tell them about their future. Well, both history and prophecy is being dealt with here in this eighth chapter of Daniel. Now, what if I told you that the key to understanding the future is found by looking into the past? And that's why God's people ought to be interested in history, in particular, biblical history. Because we're able to look into the past and we're able to see God's faithfulness in the past on the part of his people. And folks, that in turn gives us confidence as we look toward the future. And so Daniel is given a vision of the future in his day, and much of what he saw has been fulfilled as far as history is concerned. Now, as we look at this passage, just a few things to consider. Uh, Number one, uh, notice that Daniel deals with that which is chronologically first. He deals with that which is chronologically first, and that's really his point in verses one and two. You'll notice that he's, he's telling us both the time as well as the place in which he, he, uh, he was transported and, and where he received this vision of the future. As far as the time is concerned, it was in the third year of King Belshazzar that he received this vision. Now, that means it was a full two years after the vision that he had received in chapter 7. In chapter 7, verse 1, the Bible says that it was in the first year of King Belshazzar that he was given that wide-sweeping vision of 
Gentile powers leading all the way up until the coming of Christ. Well, now, two years later, in the third year of King Belshazzar, which historically would have been 551 B.C., he's receiving another vision. And, and the wording that he uses here tells us that both of these visions in chapter 7 and chapter 8, they're related. Now, the vision in chapter 8 is going to zoom in on that wide sweep of prophecy, uh, the vision of chapter 7. You know, I told you that chapter 7 is sort of a panoramic picture of prophecy. Now, when you take a panoramic picture, you know that you have that feature that you can zoom in on one particular part of that panoramic picture. You know, if you take it with your iPhone, you've got a wide sweeping landscape, you know, some mountainside or some beautiful valley. Well, if you've got a high resolution camera and you've taken that picture, uh, you, can, you can zoom in on one part of that picture and you're able to see with vivid detail one part of that panoramic picture. Well, that's what Daniel is being shown here in chapter eight. And, and in particular, he's being shown uh, the next two world empires that would walk across the stage of human history. And, uh, and, and these world empires are, are very important because of how they related to God's people, the Jews. Now, up until this point, from chapter 2 to the end of chapter 7, the original language uh, has been Aramaic, which was sort of the everyday language of the Babylonian Empire. Well, now in chapter 8, the language switches back to Hebrew. And, and each vision that Daniel is going to receive from chapter 8 all the way through the end of the book, chapter 12, uh, he's going to be given visions as they relate to the Jews. And so these Gentile kingdoms that are going to be mentioned here in chapter 8, uh, these will be very important Gentile kingdoms as far as God's plan is concerned for Israel. And what are the kingdoms that are being dealt with, symbolized by the ram and the goat? Well, we don't have to do any guesswork because later on in the chapter, we're, we're told. In the second part of the chapter, when Daniel's given the interpretation, he's told that the ram is symbolic of the kingdom of Medo-Persia, which would follow Babylon. The goat is symbolic of the kingdom of Greece, that would overtake the Persians. And so what was so significant then about the Persian Empire and then the Greek Empire as it relates to Israel? Well, did you know that 200 years before Daniel's day, the prophet Isaiah had foretold that there would be a king emerge by the name of Cyrus who would issue a decree allowing God's people to return back to their native homeland from captivity. Folks, that's even before the Babylonian captivity ever happened. Isaiah chapter 44, verse 28, Cyrus is my shepherd, says the Lord, and he will fulfill all my purposes, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple your foundation shall be laid. Cyrus the Great was king of Persia. It was Cyrus the Great who built up the Persian Empire. And so two centuries before Daniel receives his vision, God had shown the prophet Isaiah the future concerning his people. 
That after they would be carried away into captivity, God would be faithful. God would use a pagan king to issue a decree allowing his people to return back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city, to rebuild the temple. Folks, let me tell you something. God is faithful concerning his promises. You don't have to have any doubt when it comes to this book right here that you hold in your hands. This is the word of God. 100% truth without error. And its standard of accuracy as far as prophecy is concerned is 100%. So, So Persia is an important empire as far as God's people is concerned because it's the Persian empire under Cyrus. God works through Cyrus to allow his people to come back to their native homeland. Now after the Persians, the Greeks are going to step onto the scene Uh, Why is Greece so important as far as Israel is concerned? Well, because during the period of history when they dominate the, the, the known world, Jerusalem and the temple are going to be besieged again by a ruler who will emerge from the remains of the Greek empire. And this ruler, his name is Antiochus. We'll talk about him later on. But he's going to become a prototype that in many ways is going to foreshadow the coming antichrist that the New Testament writers speak of. So the time of the vision, Daniel's in the third year of King Belshazzar of Babylon. Now the place of the vision, uh, Daniel sees himself in Susa, which was a city that was 230 miles to the east of where he was in Babylon. He sees himself standing on the banks of the Ulai Canal, And he's overlooking what will become the capital of the world under the Persians. You want to bring it closer to home? You could imagine yourself standing on the banks of the Potomac River. Imagine yourself overlooking uh, Washington, D.C. Remember when Anita and I were up there for a a couple of years ago, we went to Arlington National Cemetery, and uh, we went to... um, Uh, Lee's house that was there on the hill and it was amazing as you could sort of overlook the Potomac River and then you could overlook see the city and you could see the monuments and all of that and you're overlooking literally the most powerful city of the most powerful nation on the planet that's sort of what Daniel is being shown here now he's in Babylon but he's supernaturally transported in this vision and he sees Susa which at the time was a relatively unimportant city, but it would become the most important city in the world under the Persians. And so he's given a long-range telescope, and he's watching the history of the world unfold in his day. It's almost as if God is saying, Daniel, what I'm going to show you, I'm going to show you how the kingdom of Babylon is going to come to an end, And the Persians are going to arise and become the dominant power on earth, but I'm going to show you how they're going to come to an end and how the Greeks are going to rise in their place. Isn't that just an amazing vision of the future? We look at that and we think, okay, wow. But put yourself in Daniel's shoes. Imagine that God showed you for one split second how the United States was going to fall. Imagine you received a vision or a picture of the end of America. Imagine God showed you 
with, 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 with specificity, uh, with specific detail, the nation that would arise and overtake America as the dominant power of the day. That's what Daniel is being shown here. And so is there any reason in the world why he responds the way that he does down in verse 27, the end of the vision, he's overcome and he laid around sick for several days. God gives you a glimpse of the changing dynamic of your world and your future, you'd have that same reaction too. Which by the way, I wonder how differently we might live if for one moment we saw what would happen over this next year as far as our individual lives were concerned. If God showed you the events of 2021, if God showed you the events of the next decade, how might that impact the way that you're currently living your life? If God showed you that you only had just a few days left, a few months left, a couple of years left, how might that inform the way that you use your resources, your time, how you steward your family? I guarantee you the things that are so important to you now may not necessarily be that important when you look at it in light of the brevity of your life and the way that the world around us can change on the turn of a dime. And so prophecy ought to have that effect in our lives, that it shakes us from our complacency, grips us to our core, and reminds us of what's truly important in life. So, so Daniel is dealing with that which is chronologically first in the vision. Now, notice the second thing. As far as the body of the vision itself is concerned, uh, he's going to deal with that which is historically fulfilled. Now, it's historically fulfilled from our vantage point. It wasn't fulfilled from Daniel's vantage point. It was still future. So in the body of his vision, Daniel sees these two animals. The first is a ram with two horns, and one of the horns is more prominent than the other. And as he's watching, this ram is charging westward, northward, and southward. So he sees this ram coming from the east expanding. It was stronger uh, than any other beast. No other beast could stand before this ram. If the ram had you in its sights, there was no one who could come to your rescue. And Daniel says in verse 4 that he did as he pleased and he became great. Now, as Daniel's considering the ram, uh, in verse 5, he sees a male goat coming from the west, which is the opposite direction, but this goat is traveling with such speed and ferocity that he doesn't even touch the ground as he moves from west to east. This goat has a conspicuous horn or prominent visible horn between its eyes. It's a single horn. And then Daniel watched as this male goat charges at the ram in all of its fury. Kind of reminds me of an episode of National Geographic that I saw of bighorn sheep in the Rocky Mountains. You ever, you ever seen those sheep? You ever seen those battles between those male bighorn sheep? I remember hearing in that episode that, that uh, those male uh, sheep, when they butted heads, they would butt heads with such a force. Yeah, the force was 60 times greater than that required to just crack a normal human skull. So in other words, one of them things are running at you, you better get out of its way. That's what I'm saying. 
But that's kind of what Daniel is seeing here. He sees this battle between this male goat with the prominent horn that's coming up against this ram with two horns. Verse 7 says, the ram had no power to stand before the goat, but instead he's cast down to the ground and trampled. And there's no one to rescue this ram that had been so powerful and great. And then Daniel goes on in verse 8 to tell us what becomes of this male goat. Uh, since there was none to rival its strength, he becomes exceedingly great. But just when he was strong, Daniel says that he saw the prominent horn of this goat was broken. Four other horns come up in its place. And then out of one of them, there came a little horn that grew exceedingly great. Now, what I want you to see here, notice, notice how the ram is first of all described as being great. None could rival it. That is, until the male goat comes from the west. After destroying the ram, the male goat then becomes exceedingly great. It would seem that he's invincible. But something happens, and its horn is broken. There are four other horns that emerge, and a little horn, it emerges, and it becomes exceedingly great. And so you have this pattern of greatness that is claimed for a season, but it passes on to someone else who holds the title for a season and then is forced to have to pass the title on to someone else. Folks, you realize that man has been trying to build the perfect kingdom throughout human history. And one commentator has said that human history is really nothing but a succession of defeats as far as man's governments are concerned. When one world ruler emerges onto the scene that seems to be invincible, it's only a matter of time before he meets his Waterloo, like Napoleon. Man is imperfect. What man builds is imperfect. Man, in all of his ingenuity, in all of his cleverness, in all of his supposed strength, he cannot achieve the perfect, lasting kingdom. And that's what this vision is intended to convey here in chapter 8. It's the same point that's being driven home in chapter 7. The only indestructible, everlasting, perfect kingdom is the one that God is building. It's the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so again, verses 20 and 21 tell us that this ram and goat are symbolic of two kings who are at the helm of two empires that will emerge from history. The ram, this is the Medo-Persian empire that came into power under Cyrus. And at the time, it would become the largest empire that the world had ever known overtaking Babylon. Approximately 12 years after Daniel receives this vision. He receives this vision in 551 BC, 539 BC. The city of Babylon falls to the Persians. The armies of Cyrus came from the east and conquered all surrounding kingdoms. And just as Daniel saw, Cyrus did as he pleased, he became great. It would seem that his kingdom would last forever. And in fact, he was the most dominant power on earth for just over 200 years until the goat comes from the west. This male goat charging from the west, verse 21 says, is the kingdom of Greece. And the prominent horn between its eyes is the first king of Greece, Alexander the Great. 
We know from Daniel's previous visions as well as history itself that the Medo-Persian kingdom fell to the Greeks uh, under the reign of Alexander. In fact, Alexander was 20 years old when he set out to conquer the whole world. And did you know that he was successful? Within 12 or 13 years, Alexander had conquered the whole world and his empire was even larger than that that belonged to Cyrus before him and all of those Persian kings that followed Cyrus. So here's the thing. I think you need to really remember how awesome of a passage this really is. All of this was prophecy to Daniel, but it's history to us. Prophecy to Alexander's rise to power was two centuries after Daniel made this prophecy. Greece wasn't nothing but a bunch of city-states that weren't unified at all during the day that Daniel lived. But two centuries into the future, Alexander, the son of Philip of Macedon, would unite those city-states. He would launch a campaign that would overtake the entire world. In fact, liberal scholars come to this passage and they reject it because it's so specific. They say there's no way that this could ever be prophecy because it's too specific. This is history here. And so they try to attribute some late date for Daniel rather than the 6th century B.C. They try to say that it was written in the 2nd century B.C. after the fact. But those of us who believe in a sovereign, omnipotent God, uh, listen, We know the difference, don't we? We know that this is prophecy. We have no problem accepting this as predictive prophecy because over and over again, the Bible proves accurate when it comes to prophecy. And it should just remind us that God is in control of history. He's presiding over history. That's why you don't have to panic when things don't go your way in life. That's why you don't have to cave in to despair when you see things in the world around you that just grip you and grieve your spirit, God ultimately is in control of history. And he's moving history right along to his intended conclusion. And so there's several specific prophecies that arise out of this conflict that Daniel sees between the ram and the goat. And each one of these is historically verifiable. Uh, the, The ram is Persia, the goat, this is Greece. It was, it was the Greeks that overtook the Persians. The prominent or conspicuous horn, uh, this is Alexander, the first king of the Greek empire. Uh, in fact, he was one of the most remarkable figures in human history. Um, his father sort of ingrained into his son's mind this idea of greatness. His father even told young Alexander that Macedonia was too small for him, that he should set his sights for the world. And so that's exactly what Alexander did. Uh, Alexander's mama told him that uh, his ancestors were mythological heroes such as Achilles and Hercules. You don't know who they are? In recent years, they've been portrayed on the big screen in the movies by Brad Pitt and Dwayne The Rock Johnson. So just to give you this idea of Achilles and Superman, that's who Alexander's mama believed him to be. Well, again, verse six, this male goat charges the ram in his powerful wrath. Did you know that the Greeks sort of had a chip on their shoulder when it came to Persia? 
Remember the Battle of Thermopylae? King Leonidas and his 300 Spartans who stood bravely against the two million plus military might of the Persians. The Greeks lost, but they never forgot that they lost. 150 years later, Alexander's going to step onto the scene and he's going to lead the armies of Greek, uh, the Greeks and they're going to put down uh, the final remnants of the Persian Empire and claim the world for themselves. All of that's contained right here in this prophetic passage. Josephus was a Jewish historian and there's an interesting note in his writings about Alexander. Uh, he says that Alexander rolled through Palestine on his march toward Egypt. And as he did so, he came to the city of Jerusalem. Josephus records that Alexander fully intended to conquer and plunder the city of Jerusalem. But as he approached the city, the priests came out of the city and greeted him. They invited him into the city, took him to the temple, opened up a scroll of Daniel, and took him to this very prophecy in Daniel chapter 8. And Josephus says that when the book of Daniel was showed Alexander, wherein Daniel declared that one of the Greeks should destroy the empire of the Persians, he supposed that himself was the person intended. As he was then glad, he spared the city and bid them ask whatever favors they pleased of him. Now history shows that Jerusalem was one of the very few cities in Alexander's path that he didn't conquer but treated favorably. And Josephus says it all has to do with what he was shown from Daniel chapter 8. And I could go on and on and on and talk about this stuff, but man, aren't you just grateful that God is the God of history? History is his story. There is no king, there is no power, there is no political leader who is bigger stronger than our God. Well, the horn is broken in Daniel's vision, and, and what does that represent? You know that Alexander dies at a very young age. It's said that when he and his armies swept through the entire Mediterranean, went as far east as India, Alexander's armies grew weary and discouraged, and so they came halfway back and sort of settled down in the city of Babylon. And it's said that when Alexander discovered that there were no more peoples to be conquered, that he sat down and wept like a baby. Now he was 33 years of age when he died. History tells us that he, dry, he died uh, in a drunken state. He had contracted some form of malaria or a fever. But it was not before he had permanently changed the landscape of the whole world. It was Alexander and the Greeks that provided the world a common language, a uniform currency, a shared culture known as Hellenism. And someone says, well, why was that so important? Because listen, did you know the New Testament's written in Koine Greek? And it was Alexander who spread Koine Greek throughout the whole world. In many ways, it was the common shared Greek culture and language that, 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 that made the spread of the gospel uh, so I don't want to say easy, but so rapid in the first century. What I want you to see is God is arranging the circumstances, moving all of the chess pieces uh, in history to achieve his own purposes and ends. Uh, we see it with the Persians. God uses the Persians to get his people out of Babylon and back in their native land so that the temple could be rebuilt. 
so that he could honor his promises that he made to Abraham and to David and the fact that a Messiah would be coming uh, through the lineage of David. God works uh, through history, through even a man like Alexander, uh, so that he can provide a common language which would make the spread of the gospel that much more rapid. What might God be doing behind the scenes in history today? Politically? What you may deem as being the worst possible outcome of an election? What you may see as being the worst possible thing for for Christianity and for your life and all of that? Folks, God is still seated on the throne. And that is the message of the Bible. And that's the confidence that God's people can have. Our confidence has never come from Washington, D.C. Our confidence has never come from some political process. Our confidence has always been in a sovereign and omnipotent God who is achieving his purposes. Well, one final thing that I want you to notice here, and it has to do that which is prophetically foreshadowed. I'm not going to get any further than this. Daniel deals with what's chronologically first, what's, what's historically um, fulfilled, but also what's prophetically foreshadowed. And this is really seen in the majority of the vision that has to do with this little horn that emerges out of the four horns that spring up after the prominent horn, Alexander, is broken or dies. After Alexander died, his empire was divided up among his four generals. And two of those generals become the most prominent Seleucus and Ptolemy. Seleucus inherits uh, parts of Syria, the Middle East, to the east. Ptolemy inherits and fights for the south, parts of Egypt. And so for the next century and a half, the Seleucids and the Ptolemies would war over territory, and Israel would be ground zero for much of that conflict. And eventually, the Seleucid dynasty emerges as the dominant dynasty in the Middle East. And there's going to be a guy who emerges as a descendant of Seleucus, and his name is Antiochus. He's Antiochus IV in history. Uh, The Jews referred to him as Antiochus uh, Epimenes. He wanted to be referred to as Antiochus Epiphanes, God manifest. Real humble guy, (laughs) right? He believed himself to be an incarnation of deity. He savagely attacks Jerusalem, ransacks the temple, murders the high priest, sacrifices a pig on the altar in the temple, desecrates the temple, and has that pig's blood, that sow's blood, scattered all throughout the temple in an act that's known as the abomination of desolation in Daniel. But it's going to be a foreshadowed event of what's going to happen in the future. Jesus is going to say in Matthew chapter 24, quoting from the prophet Daniel, that in the last days there's going to be abomination which causes desolation. He's referring to the Antichrist. He said, okay, listen, why the history lesson this morning? Why the history lesson? Because folks, I want you to see that no matter what's happening in the world around you, God is working out his plan. 
Daniel may be in Babylon, but God's going to show him visions that relate to the future of God's people. And then Daniel's going to write these down so that you and I will have an anchor in times like these that keeps us level-headed and grounded. I don't know about you, but I tend to be so myopic and short-sighted in my life. And I often jump to conclusions about my life when I'm only seeing things as it relates to the here and now. And that's why both prophecy and history are important for God's people. Because we're able to see the faithfulness of God in the past, and that gives us courage in this present hour. We don't have to cave in to despair when it comes to tomorrow because we know ultimately the kingdom belongs to the Son of Man. And aren't you grateful for that this morning? Would you stand with me as we pray together this morning? Three quick things for you to remember before I pray. This truth that's revealed in this passage reminds us that we can always have confidence in God's word. When you don't know what's going on in the world around you, listen, dive into the pages of scripture. Rely upon the the, the power of the Holy Spirit to take the word of God and bring comfort to your heart, especially when you're discouraged. Our God is the God of details. And if he can take care of things on the world stage, don't you think that he can take care of things in your life as an individual man or woman? If he can take care of empires, kings, don't you think that he can take care of your children and the things that we tend to worry about and be concerned with? You know, something else this reminds me is that I can be calm when the world around me seems to be unraveling. This helps me remember that, you know what? Jesus is coming. When things go south in my world, I can be calm, cool, and level-headed because I know ultimately I'm on the winning side of history, King Jesus. And that also means that I can have courage when it comes to sharing the good news of salvation. You know, verse 27 says Daniel was emotionally impacted by what he had been shown, but he didn't check out because after the vision is interpreted, he says, you know what? I arose and went about the king's business. He didn't quit. He didn't cave into despair. He didn't retreat. He didn't live out the rest of his life in isolation, waiting for the end. No, he just went about his regular routine, went about life. That's the same thing that you and I should do as God's people in these days. We've got a job to do as believers to share the gospel to make disciples, to point people to the only true and lasting hope. And that's the hope that they can have in Jesus Christ. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior today, then listen, let me just urge you, while you have time and opportunity, to turn from your sin and place your faith in Jesus Christ, believing that he died for you on the cross and that he rose again from the dead. He's ascended, he's Lord, and one of these days he's going to be coming back for his own. And we long for that day. Lord, in Jesus' name, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for your faithfulness in history. And Lord, as far as prophecy that's yet to be fulfilled, we have confidence, Lord. And your faithfulness in the past helps us have confidence and hope as far as our future is concerned. So would you encourage your saints this morning? 
God, may we work while we have time and opportunity, while we have freedom to share our faith and make disciples. Oh God, may we live for that which truly matters, eternal things, kingdom things. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.